Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Happy Wednesday. I'm glad to be here with you on this Wednesday, and I'm glad that we switched to Wednesdays. I got to tell you, it's working better for my schedule. Welcome to the Extraordinary Talk Show, where we talk about things that you maybe just haven't thought about before. And like I say every week, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm trying to get you to think for yourself. And because of that, and not only because of that, I ask that you please not believe a word that I say. I want to give you ideas. I want to give you new things to think about. I do not want to tell you what to think about those things. I want you to think about them for yourself. Plus, I also know that I can't teach you anything, that you can only learn from yourself. You can only ultimately learn by one, your own example, your own personal experience, and two, what you learn from your higher self and your inner knowing. And anything that I say can only be confirmed by your inner knowing, but that means that you can only know it's true from you, not from me. So I invite you to entertain the things that I have to talk about. I invite you to use them as mental bubblegum and play with them and decide from there what you think and what your own opinions are. But there's a thing we talked about last week that I want to go over really briefly on that. As you're about evaluating your thoughts and developing your own opinions, it's important to not sign your name with an opinion that isn't absolutely validated. Because we make a mistake as humans that we want to be right. And so when we think that we're right, boy, we cling to that. It feels so good to be right. And we want other people to know that we're right. And we make that being right about that thing part of our identity. We sign our name with it. And then when we find out we're not right, it's really, really hard to walk back on that. You got to eat a lot of crow. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to eat crow. So as I evaluate and develop my own thoughts and opinions, I also keep in mind that everything that I now believe to be true is very, very different. Very, very different from everything that I believed to be true 10 years ago. And there were things that I was absolutely signing my name with 10 years ago. And it was really, really difficult for me to walk back on a lot of those things personally and private, personally, privately and publicly, meaning that there were a lot of things that I had to change my own idea and my own belief on. And that was really difficult. But in the long run, the way better choice. And there were things that I had to publicly state. I used to say this. Now I say this. There were people I had to apologize to because I was not kind to them based on beliefs that I had. And when I came to understand new beliefs, I realized that I owed an apology to those people. And that's what I mean by having to walk back on your opinions and your ideas and your beliefs. I don't mind giving an apology when an apology is due. And I hope that I can always admit when I am wrong. But the point is, I've learned now as I'm learning new things 
to be careful what I sign my name with, to be careful when I find something that I believe is true, it's actually possible to disassociate an idea, even an opinion or a belief from my ego, that the two of them do not have to be connected, that I can have an idea and a belief and that it can change without affecting my ego, that my ego still stays the same or maybe even hopefully improves in its own way. So what I'm saying is think for yourself, think carefully for yourself, and when you decide what values to live by and to sign your name by, do that carefully and do that. But do it carefully and be willing to admit when you're wrong because every single one of us is at some point, even me, even when I'm wrong about it. So this week I want to talk to you about a fun conversation that I've had in a few different places with a few different people and it comes down to consent. And we talk about consent a lot in the media today and in public today and it has a lot of meanings and obviously one of the most ways that when we talk about make sure you get consent one of the main ways we're talking about is before um, adult activity or sexual activity and that's very critical and holds a very very important part in the informed consent conversation Another, the opposite side of consent, I think that we don't talk about or that maybe we gloss over because of exactly what it is, is assuming. It's easy to avoid getting consent when we assume that we have it. One example of this that I think is a, a pretty colorful example, my friend Danny talks about consent within ethical non-monogamy. And if you're familiar with ethical non-monogamy, you can break that down into non-monogamy means it's a relationship between people who have decided that they are not going to be monogamous, that within their relationship, they choose just like how at your house, you can decide what the monopoly rules are. Like if you pass go, you get $500 instead of $200. That's your house rule. If you land on free parking and you get all the money in the middle, that's your house rule. That rule is not actually in the books. That's a rule that you made up and you get to make up your own house rules for monopoly and you get to make up your house rules for how your relationship is. And that can be a romantic relationship or otherwise, but every relationship is different. Every relationship is unique, whether it's a friendship, a platonic, it could be a platonic nesting partner or any kind of different relationships within that relationship. You set your own rules, you set your own guidelines and the beauty of it is that you get to do that. And some people choose to be monogamous. In fact, some people would say it's not a choice. They would say it's who they are. It's part of what they're driven by and that they have zero desire to be other than monogamous. And then there are other people who would say that they, it is not their choice to be non-monogamous, that they are polyamorous and that they cannot limit their love to only one person. And we can have another top discussion another day about how much of that is a choice and how much of that is what is driven within you. The point being within your relationship, 
if you choose to be non-monogamous, it needs to be discussed and made as part of the house rules. And that's why we call it ethical non-monogamy. Because a lot of people, when you hear the term non-monogamy, the first thing you think of is cheating. And it's not that, because cheating is when you break the rules, but with the, you've written your house rules to say these things are okay and appropriate, that's not cheating, that's not breaking the rules. And that's when you have ethical non-monogamy because everyone is agreeing and it's ethically above board. Now, where my friend Danny takes that one step farther is to ensure that it's consensual ethical non-monogamy. And you might assume that ethical non-monogamy should automatically be consensual. And that is where consent mixes up with assuming. It is important to not merely assume that your relationship or the relationship with someone that you're talking to is ethical non-monogamy unless you know that everyone involved in that relationship is consensual and informed to the, what they're agreeing to and what they're going along with. And here we talk about consent versus assuming. It's so easy to get consent for the simplest things. And when I say consent, I want to actually stretch that to confirmation. For example, I might call up my friend and say, hey, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to be there at this time. I'm planning on bringing these things. And maybe my friend didn't need to know that. Maybe my friend was already expecting me. Maybe we've already had a kind of conversation. And maybe if I show up, my friend won't mind with even if they don't know I'm coming ahead of time. And I can assume that it's okay for me to show up. Chances are it is. However, it doesn't hurt to get a simple clarification, confirmation, consent. You can call it a CCC. And in fact, there's other words you could substitute in there that would also start with C. But instead of assuming, you just confirm, hey, send a text. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be there. This is what's going on with me that day. And one thing that I was wondering about is why don't we ask consent more or just in that manner, it's not even asking as much as giving. It's giving a confirmation, which carries with it consent. Um, I have, you might have an example, same thing of wanting to go over to a friend's house and you might want to assume that it's okay and maybe it's a friend that you've always assumed before and so you've always thought it was okay but maybe you feel like you should get, just confirm that it's okay and you kind of find yourself in that middle place and here's where you get to choose, do I assume that it's fine for me to show up or should I get some confirmed clarification and consent? Why do we go back and forth? Why is that a question? Maybe you're in a hurry and you don't have time to send the text. That's one example. But are you avoiding getting your con confirmation of, and clarification of consent ahead of time because you're afraid of rejection? And I think that that's where we as humans often choose to 
assume rather than get consent is because we're afraid of rejection. And this comes back to basic human need, that it's our human need to be accepted. And what I've learned is the more I accept myself and the more I love myself inside, the less external acceptance I need. And in fact, the external acceptance really doesn't do anything for me other than pat me on the back in the moment anyway, because when it comes down to it, what really matters is how much I love myself and how much I accept myself. But in working with other people, we have to get acceptance from other people. And it can be scary to ask for for consent for those things. And sometimes I think we just get so used to being afraid of rejection that it's easier to just assume rather than to ask for the consent that we're looking for or give the confirmation that we want to give. And that can go either way. It can come down to if you're on a date and you want to hold this person's hand and they're afraid of taking your hand because they're afraid of being rejected and you're afraid of taking their hand because you're afraid of being rejected so neither of you hold each other's hands. Well, in that way, no one has been rudely offended on, which is also good. But it puts us in a really weird place and how do we get that consent when we're in that scary place where we are afraid of being rejected. It can be as easy as reaching your hand out and touching their hand with your hand. That's a socially acceptable touch. And they can pull their hand away if they don't want you to touch it. But you haven't grabbed them. You haven't forced them to do anything that they didn't want to do. On the other hand, you could also say, would it be okay if I held your hand? And it is surprising how positively people respond when you ask them verbally. And it's so easy to say, can I hold your hand? Yet at the same time, it's really hard to say, can I hold your hand? My challenge for you is to ask someone for verbal consent for something. As simple as holding their hand, as simple as, may I get the door for you? And sometimes, here's a trick, guys. People that don't, that might not let you do something if you just did it, they might not really like it if you just jumped ahead of them and opened the door or if you just reached out and took their hand and how do you know? If you ask them, if you make it a request, all of a sudden they feel more respected all of a sudden, they understand what it is that you are seeking from them, which makes it a whole lot easier to trust you. And then you receive not only consent, but also more enthusiasm. So test this yourself, because I don't ask you to believe anything I say. You will find that if you verbally request confirmation and consent, you will re receive more excitement about the thing that you're asking for as well as affirmation for the thing that you're asking for. So challenge your fears, challenge your rejection, 
And I, if you're in a situation where you're like, I wanna, I wanna, how do I hold her hand? Can I put my arm around her? Should I get the door? Just ask. It's not that hard. It is that, it, it feels that hard when you're in that moment. But once you do it, you realize it wasn't that hard. And then by asking, I think you'll find you'll get an even better response than what you had expected. On the other hand, you might get a rejection. And a rejection can be a, a wonderful learning opportunity. So don't be afraid of rejection because if you get rejection, then you actually get to experience it and you find out, guess what? It's not that bad. So my point there to summarize is the reason that we don't often ask consent, the reason that we often assume is because we're afraid of rejection. And if you can get over your own fear of rejection and verbalize what it is that you're seeking, ask for, your, ask for a clarification, confirmation of consent, you'll be surprised at how well things go for you. And that can be in anything in your life. And from here, I want to jump to something that I talked about a little bit last week, but didn't go into too deeply. And I went to an, into a little bit just at the beginning of the show. But I want to talk more about being right and being safe. Humans have two deep, deep needs to be safe and to be right. And the thing is, to be physically safe preserves our body and to be right preserves our ego. So you see why those two things stand up so important to us. Now, one thing that happens time and time again, you can see people sacrificing their own safety in environments that blow you away that seem so odd. For example, cults. This is the best example. It's the easiest one. All of us have watched some type of cult story on TV or on a video or hopefully in a class and learned some of the things that make a successful cult. Not because we want to do that, but because we want to be able to avoid that. One thing that always makes a successful cult is a charismatic leader. And this is someone who at the beginning is admired and then over time is feared. And what this person offers at the beginning is both safety and rightness. Religious cults specifically tell the person, tell the people you're in trouble. You're in danger. Your soul is in danger and or your body is in danger. Based on these religious teachings, based on these current political laws, your soul and or body are in danger. So here we create an illusion of unsafety. And when people have an illusion of unsafety, they get scared and fear is very, very powerful. And because we want that safety so much, we will run from, we will run towards anything that we think will take that fear away. And what these cult leaders also offer us is the ability to be right, to have the right, to have your ego padded, to say, look, everybody else 
they're also in danger. Everyone else's souls and bodies are also in danger too, but they don't know what we know. So first of all, we're placing ourselves above other people. We are elevating us above others. Those people don't know what we know. We have the law. We have this book. We have the gospel. We have the answer. We have this thing that is going to bring you safety. And by giving, so by first creating the illusion of unsafety, the cult leader is then able to create fear and now can come in and give you those two things that you really want, safety and rightness. Because we're so right, we have the right thing, we have the answer, we have the way out of this. Everybody else doesn't, they have to answer to us, they have to answer to me actually, Mr. Cult Leader, because I'm the only one who truly knows whoever really has the answer, which is why all you guys have to answer to me. So I'm the one who's right and I'm going to tell you what's right. But I'm telling you what's right, guys. Now you're right because you listened to me and I was right. Now you're right too. So you can be right. And because I told you what was right, now you can also be safe. And just like that, by creating fear, then creating the illusion of an answer that creates the illusion of safety, we now have a cult. People cling to being right to the very end. So now we have these people who are in cults who are even suffering abuse, sometimes horrible abuse. And yet they continue to stay in it because they still think that they're right. And they still think that this is the only path to their safety. And they sacrifice their safety for the illusion of being right. And why am I bringing this up? Because I see it happening. I've seen it in religions and I've seen it in families and I've seen it in economics and I've seen it in politics. And I can't tell you anything other than the signs to look for. Look for somebody who says, you're in danger and I have the only answer. Anyone who's telling you you're in danger, they're creating for you an illusion of unsafety, so you're going to cling to safety. You're going to search for safety. And then they can show you, ta-da, I have your safety. I, I'm the right guy who has the right answer, and I'm going to give you the right thing. And now, because you think that you have the only right thing that is the only thing that's going to bring safety, now you're signing your name with that. Now... And we've seen it happen by cult members in the past. They literally take it to their death. They sacrifice their safety for the illusion of being right. And that doesn't mean that there's not safety out there. There is safety out there. In fact, there's more safety than the people who are trying to scare us want us to see that there is. There's so much safety and there's so much rightness, but you don't have to sign your name with it. You can just follow what does feel right because what does feel right will always have more than one answer. And also what is right never minds being questioned. What is truthful never minds being questioned. False right is terrified of questions. The thing that's standing up saying that he's right the cult leader who says, I have the right answers, he's terrified of being questioned because he's terrified of being deposed because he knows if you ask the right questions, you'll get the right answers and you'll find out that he isn't right.
please seek the right answers. Seek the right safety. And realize you're not in danger. (laughs) Guys, I love you. I'm Della. This is The Extraordinary Talk Show. And I hope that you have another extraordinary week. I love you. Remember, I'm not trying to tell you what to think, but I am trying to get you to think for yourself.